This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. All right. Uh, so, spe- this is a very, very special Daily Thunder. Uh, it's sort of hard to describe uh, the significance of it for Leslie and I. But since we have the Purity Summit this afternoon, uh, which is going to, we're going to be doing the filming for all the, all the live uh, filming for it this afternoon, and then uh, we'll be making that available to people via uh, a simulcast later this fall. And so uh, I know probably most of you in here are going to be at that, but uh, that's a significant thing that I think is happening in the Christian world today. Uh, with the breakdown, some of the key voices that have stood on relationships, on uh, sexuality, have fallen to pieces right before our eyes in the past uh, five years. And uh, Joshua Harris being, of course, the latest uh, one and in his marriage with Shannon. And that's like deeply burdensome to me. And I remember uh, just sitting in our living room and I was just so burdened, like, God, what am I supposed to do? Uh, I, I feel like I'm supposed to do something, but I don't know what that something is. And so if you followed my last couple months, uh, how Leslie and I have walked through it, you've seen that I have uh, made statements and I've uh, stood on this because I feel like there's this delicate balance where the idea of godly sexuality is like under siege. And even in the church, it's almost like, yeah, let's throw that out. Whoever came up with this idea that we needed to be different than the world, let's just do what we feel like instead of having these high standards, because high standards are legalism. And so it's like this banner, this blanket that gets thrown over all higher forms of living. In other words, yeah, we're just beasts, we're animals, let's just behave like it, burp, scratch. And it goes so opposite the grain of everything I know, spiritually, everything I know in the development of what the Spirit of God has done in me. It's just like, I cannot stand silent on this point. And Leslie and I used to travel the world on this topic. And so for us, when this was all happening, is like we felt like the gaze of a culture was like looking at us like, what are you going to say? What are you going to do? And I remember saying to Leslie, it's like, I feel like we need to say something. And her response was like, I, I don't think that's a wise idea. The last thing we need is drama in our life. We have plenty of it already. The last thing we need to do is stick our finger into that blender uh, and just sort of see what happens. <laughs> and, and yet, as we prayed about it, she felt the same thing. We do need to say something, whether or not we're happy about it or not. We do need to say something. And so in the process, it's interesting because, you know, th- these are some good friends of mine, uh, and I'm not mentioning names beyond what I've already said, but some very good friends of ours that have fallen into disrepair and their lives have literally just sort of been on meltdown and it causes a weakening in the younger generation, the generation that's listened to them and followed. It's like, well, so what is this? What foundation did they have? Because doesn't it say when winds and rains beat against the house, if it's built upon the rock, it will stand? Were they not built upon rock? I mean, how are we supposed to reason through this? And so one of the things that I've decided, Les and I both have just decided that, okay, 
you know, here we are celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary in December. Let's, let's celebrate louder. Let's, because there's something very, very precious that we have. I don't know what they had. I can't speak for their life. It's a very odd situation to be in. I can't make any commentary on their decisions and their life that they've, they've lived. I know them, but I can't give an uh, in-depth analysis of what has led to this breakdown, but I can celebrate what God has done uh, in the last 25 years in my life. And I want to celebrate marriage the way God intended it, I want to celebrate his foundation that he desires to lay so that it can stand the test of time. And I do not want the enemy getting away with anything right now in the church. I want to establish and, and fortify that which matters most. And so that's, this is going to be a very simple message. I don't know how long it's going to take to go through it. But I'm going to have Leslie actually in just a few minutes come up and join me. And so we're going to go through, which is, th this is symbolic for us. Ten years ago, when we were first starting Ellerslie, before the first semester started, uh, it was about six months before the first semester started, we celebrated our 15th wedding anniversary. And over in the building between the uh, girls' dorms, you know, the, we call it the 300 and 400 wing. We need a better name for it than that. It's not very romantic. And uh, we shared our, a, a sort of a retrospect on our 15 years. And... I'm going to do the same with Leslie today, a retrospect in our 25 years, except for it's not a full retrospect. It's almost just a quick overview of some of the key things that when we used to travel around the world and speak, this is what we taught. And so for us, it's deeply symbolic. Uh, it's reminiscent of foundation stones. It's like, yeah, let's, let's bring those up into the light and let's shine them up afresh uh, for even our study, perusal, and enjoyment. Let's remember from where we've come. Uh, one of the, the daily thunders I had, I don't know when that was, it was a few weeks ago, uh, it was about remembrance. It was one of the key life lessons that I have is the, is the principle of remembrance. And for Leslie and I, that's very critical. We, we will always hearken back to the things that God has established in our life. And right now, in a time like this, when it feels like uh, fur is flying and it looks like, you know, how can the church possibly become stronger uh, through these things. That's exactly the, the notion that the devil says. It's like, you guys are growing weaker, weaker, weaker. This isn't real, this isn't real, this isn't real. When in actuality, God takes such circumstances as this as his kindling for the movement of grace. God loves to take us when we're weak and prove his strength in and through it. And so right now, I would agree with the devil. The church is weak, but God isn't. And if we would humble ourselves, pray and seek his face, we're going to see a movement of grace in our generation, maybe beyond anything we've ever seen. So that's what I'm after. So uh, this one's called 25 Years, the Anniversary Edition. I'm going to do a little lead-in, and then I'll have Leslie come up. Uh, the principle of the greatest love story of all time. Uh, so if you've ever heard... Uh, us talk, we'll, we'll brag about the fact that we have the greatest love story of all time. And then you hear like Philip and Emily Hartman come up and they'll start saying that they have the greatest love story of all time. So I'm going to give you the principle of how we determine the greatest love story of all time. It always belongs to the one making the announcement. Uh, <laughs> but you need to realize there's something precious in that. That's a principle that I want you to grab a hold of. And that is that God designs this area for us as individuals. The way he, his spirit works in our life is not 
just so that we can show something off and, and brag about it, he, he truly gives us something that is beyond our wildest dreams. This is what he does. Heaven is beyond our wildest dreams. When he curates and caretakes for our life as Christians, he gives us something we do not deserve, and he moves us in directions that are astounding, especially when we know that we're sinners, and we, don't, we shouldn't have this. This shouldn't be ours and yet he delights to offer us grace in our weakest moments. And so it truly is astounding. If you've ever walked through a God-written love story, it's hard to describe. Words pale next to it because you recognize, God, I didn't deserve any of this, and yet you gave it to me, and in superabundance. The great mystery of married love. So marriage doesn't matter, okay? Marriage is under siege. You know, we've had things happen since Les and I gave our 15-year retrospect, well, the Supreme Court has changed the, the laws in our land on marriage, and it has opened up an entire new definition of what marriage is. And the version of marriage that is currently in vogue in our generation does not function in accordance with God's initial purpose for marriage. And this is what's interesting, is I'm gonna give a little subtitle here. It is a chief means of revealing the kingdom of heaven. God has a means of revealing his pattern and his kingdom, the relationship between Christ and his church, and it is actually found in the makeup of what he designed marriage to be. And you know, so as a, just to give you the scripture that so profoundly enunciates that, in Ephesians 5.32, Paul is going back and forth talking about how wives should behave in regards to their husbands, husbands should behave in regards to their wives, and then he'll, he'll weave in some things about Christ, his church. And all of us, when we read that, are thinking about marriage, okay, earthly marriage. I mean, it's just hard not to because we love the topic, and there it is right in front of us. And most husbands will say, see, Paul's talking about you submitting, and then the wives are saying, well, you know, you, you need to be uh, living with me in an understanding way, this, which is a different passage. But, they, you know, you're, still, you're going around in Ephesians, and your wives and husbands are thinking about wives and husbands. This is a great mystery. And we're like, it sure is. And then he says, I'm speaking concerning Christ and the church. In other words, yes, this is an earthly representation of something and it has great value, but to the degree that it's revealing something greater. You see, the reason this is such an important thing is that it is a key chief instrument to reveal the unseen realm, which is why even a godless marriage will face demonic attack. Why? Because it's a shadow of something. And the devil wants to take it out. He hates that shadow. And so if the devil's you know, up to no good, this is one of his chief ends. Destroy marriage. Very specifically, Christian marriage. So that at least gives you a little background of why marriages fall apart. They're under a direct attack because they're a chief revelation of the invisible realm. How will we know God's kingdom? How will we know God's ways? How will we understand his relationship with us? Kaboom. God designed marriage to be that chief vehicle through which we would understand that relationship. So when Leslie and I used to travel uh, the world and speak, we used to give a message called, uh, it wasn't called Four Secrets to an Amazing Love Story, was it? That was actually what our message used to be? Preparing for an Amazing Love Story. That's, that's right, it was called. You'd think we would. See, this is why we have to remember. Uh, preparing for an amazing love story, but in that, we would always give the four principles of an amazing love story, okay? So this is all the way back. When we first spoke back in 1995, I think was our first event that we ever gave, 
and it was in Boulder, Colorado, actually. We were living in Michigan, and we were invited out to Colorado to have our first uh, event. Isn't that an irony? And in that, I don't know that we had four. I, don't, I think we might have even had more. We had, you know, I don't know what we called that one. But over time, we're like, you know, that, that needs to be consolidated. This, let's bring this in here. And so we landed on four. We, we spent, oh, I don't know, well over a decade traveling the world and speaking on the four principles of amazing love stories. And so I would like to just review those really quick. Surrender, faithfulness, tenderness, and teammates. Now, in and of themselves, those don't say anything, okay? When we would go through them, we had a little different phraseology for them, like surrender was give God the pen, uh, faithfulness was being faithful to your spouse, oh, being faithful even now. Do you remember how we used to say that? It was something like loving your spouse even now, even before you meet them. Uh, tenderness, uh, develop a tender side was our, was our concept, which will make more sense when we say it because it's like, what, what's that thing? Uh, and teammates, uh, draft a winning team. That was our, our terminology for that one. And so what I'd like to do is, uh, is unless you can decide if you want to come up now or if you want to wait till it's story time. But uh, principle number one is surrender. And I, there's so much in scripture in regards to letting go of our life. And if we hold on to our life, we lose it. But if we lay down our life, if we give up our life, we find it. And this is the essence of what I would say is the backbone of everything Leslie and I have stood for, for for decades, for 25 years. This is the foundation of our love story. You hold on to that pen and say, I want a love story on my terms, my way. You're going to lose your love story right there. You, a humanly contrived love story is not going to be anything. It can't touch what God can do if he has the controls. But to give God the controls is a process of dying. It's the same thing we walk through. Remove the topic of romance for a second. It's life. You hold on to your life and you lose it. You hold on to your way of doing things and you're gonna lose your life. But if you're willing to let go, deny yourself is the term that Jesus is gonna use here in Matthew 16. Deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow. At first it's like, that sounds like death. Yeah, yeah it is. But what follows death? Life. You see, in the kingdom of heaven, you want capital L life, you need to first come to your end. You see, we have a vision of how we want to live out our love stories, of what we think is the best, but when we let him have the controls, he knows how to do it. It's that simple. So uh, with each one of these, I wanted to have the stories. I was just calling them story. I should have called it story time. Story time with Eric and Leslie. But with each one of these, and we're gonna be short, okay? That's our goal. Uh, it, it's, it, we've, we've, we've waxed eloquent on this topic for years, so it's very possible that we might have things spurt out that go longer, but we'll try and restrain ourselves. Les, do you want me to share my story first and then you come up? Okay, she's biding her time. Her neck uh, has difficult time when she's sitting up here in this chair, so that's why I'm trying to give as much time as possible uh, to start out. So, surrender. In, in my life, in this particular area specifically, it's interesting because Leslie and I run parallel to each other. We're going through something very significant and, uh, and deep at the exact same time, and that is God is knocking on the door of our life saying, I'd like in, I'd like control. See, we grew up as Christians, both of us, but we didn't understand the idea that God needs to have control over our life. And so my illustration was always kink, kink, 
that God's knocking on the door, and I'm like, yeah, who goes there? And I'm like, Jesus, can't you just bless my life? How about I give you, you know, just sort of a wave from my window, and I say, I love you. You're, the, you're, you're my savior. You're great. And then he goes, kink, kink. Yeah, I'd like to be Lord. I'd like to come in and be the master of the house. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And so in this process in my life, I remember the day even that I yielded and I opened the front door. I'm like, God, I, I'm so sorry for holding you out and at bay. I know that you purchased this body with your blood. I know that I'm bought with a price. I'm not my own. I acknowledge that. So why don't you come on in and make yourself comfortable in the entryway? And you know, for me, we, we give up and we yield and we surrender to the, degree we, to the degree that we know to surrender. And for me, I mean, it sounds terrible at first to say that I gave him the entryway, you know, and I said, hey, change the chandelier, change the flooring, the wallpaper, do whatever you want to in the entryway, I'm just gonna be back in my rooms. And not recognizing that I was still holding on to a control of a certain dimension of my life that God wanted to invade, that he wanted to actually deal with. And so I had all sorts of things, all sorts of identity things. I had, you know, the way I wanted to be perceived by the world, and God's like, kink, kink, I, yeah, I sort of need in there. I need to get all of that Eric stuff out. I had, you know, my passions, you know, at sports, I had the Denver Broncos, whole room, you know, for the Denver Broncos. And then I had relationships. And this was like the untouchable room. I had multiple deadbolts on this door. Kink, kink. Like, you've got to be kidding. I had never heard, except for Jim Elliott, some guy that was crazy enough to give control over to God. It's like, no. And Jim Elliott is like an extremist, right? If you study him, it's like, wow, this guy is dead serious. Do I need to be that serious? And I remember the knock was persistent in my life. I had told God I wanted his fullness. I wanted to go wherever he wants me to lead. But then when he starts asking for very specific things, I find myself resistant. And so in my life, one of the most crucial things that ever happened is this, which is why you see Leslie and I, because she's going to say the same thing when she comes up, for both of us, the most important thing that we ever had happen in our love story and in continuing that love story, in progressing in, in laying a foundation for a marriage that will stand the test of time, is this. We cannot be the ones in the control position. Jesus needs to be. And that right there is the great secret. I'm giving it to you right there. You don't just deny yourself when you're 18, pick up your cross and follow him. And at the age of 23, after you get married, you know, now you say, you know, I'm pretty good. And you sit back down in your throne and set down your, your cross. That isn't how it works. This is the lifestyle that we cultivate. It's a lifestyle of surrender. It's a lifestyle of denial. It's a lifestyle of carrying a cross. And it's a death to our way where self is capitalized, the capital S self, and it's always, every day we die, and we take a lowercase s position. Self is subservient to God's agenda. All right, love? Right side or left side? All right. Well, I did go through a very similar process before we were married of just laying down this area of my future but I felt like this morning what I wanted to share with you is, was a surrender process that God brought to the surface after we were married. And some of you may know the story, but it was the first year that we were married, we moved out to a kind of a rural area of Michigan. And we had had, the way God scripted our love story was very beautiful, very, just had this sort of fairy tale veneer to it. And even though there were things we had to lay down and things that were difficult, when God actually brought us together, it was just absolutely beautiful. And it was so far beyond 
a love story I would have come up with for myself. And so I kind of expected, you know, we get married, we ride off into the sunset, and the fairy tale continues. Well, I would say in our, in our love story, our relationship with each other, we were very strong and it was beautiful, but our circumstances were not like a fairy tale. <laughs> and we ended up in this rural area of Michigan, and I had grown up in suburban Colorado, suburb of Denver, so I was used to you know, the mall is five minutes away, there's five major grocery stores within 10 minutes drive, you know, there's just things around. We went to this town called Pawpaw, Michigan, that's P-A-W, P-A-W, Pawpaw, and it was, I think it had maybe one grocery store which was about the size of this room, which is a small room for those listening on the podcast, and that was it, like maybe a gas station, and we were miles from the nearest neighbors, uh, stores, civilization, and we were living, we were, you know, newlyweds, no money, and we were living in this bed and breakfast that was on a lake, and it was beautiful in the summer. In the winter, they closed it up and boarded it up, and it was just kind of sat empty and cold and dark, and we got a great deal on it because, you know, no one's using it for the whole winter, so that was, when Eric first rented it before I came out there, it was... Oh, it, was it was gorgeous. It was so amazing. I was, I was thinking, I am going to be the greatest husband ever by getting her this place because it was swans on the lake because he he rented it in the late fall early fall maybe the trees had leaves they were beautiful colors swans floating on the lake you know just beautiful flowers everywhere and then I got there in January and <laughs> so the <laughs> there were no leaves on the trees there were no swans on the frozen lake there were uh, it was this part of Michigan that the sun never comes out all winter. So it was like gloomy and dark. I just felt like, you know, it was, it was probably one of their coldest winters. I thought it was normal for Michigan, but it was probably like below, 15 below almost every day. And you, so you couldn't really go outside. There were just snow on the ground that wouldn't melt. The, the, they had most of the windows that would show the view of the lake like all boarded up because this was a really old house and they had all these leaks. And uh, well, I could go on and on about this place, but I remember just feeling my, my hopes and expectations kind of like deflate like a balloon. Like, where's the, you know, where's the white picket fence? Where's the beautiful flowers? Where's the cozy little newlywed home? It wasn't anything like that. This place had, it, it was really more like a haunted house than anything else. It had maybe seven or eight bedrooms, and uh, it had an industrial-sized kitchen. So, you know, four stoves, five refrigerators. So I'm like, how am I supposed to cook anything in a, you know, you feel like you're just in this restaurant trying to make a meal for two people. And, but things got a lot worse than just being detached from civilization and being in this cold, haunted house kind of a thing. We, we woke, I'm trying to think of the first thing that happened. I think it was the, the, the bug bites. So I woke up in the morning covered in bug bites. This was after we'd been there for a few weeks, and I thought, okay, this is all these red bites all over me. He had a few, but I had tons, and I thought, okay, I don't know where this is coming from. This is in the middle of winter. It's not like we've been out in the woods hiking around. Like, where are this? It must be in the house somewhere. We could not find any bugs in the house, though, So, but I had these bites everywhere. So we kept thinking, I kept thinking, bed bugs. Like, are bed bugs real? You always hear the saying, don't let the bed bugs bite. Is that a real thing? <laughs> I mean, I never had bed bugs before, and so we... We tried all this stuff. We tried like putting plastic covers over the mattress. We tried like washing all the sheets in really hot water. Then we tried moving from bedroom to bedroom. Nothing worked. The bites kept getting worse. Every day I'd have more of them. And finally one day, 
I looked down in the carpet and there were these black bugs jumping out of the carpet. They were fleas and the house was infested with fleas. Now that seems weird because we didn't even have any animals in the house. And you think dogs, fleas, but we had raccoons. We didn't realize they were raccoons. We had raccoons though that were there unbeknownst to us that were bringing in the fleas. I guess a huge percentage of fleas in the winter reside on raccoons. I didn't know this until I lived in Papa, Michigan. But um, <laughs> When one day he was off, we only had one car, so I was stuck in this creepy old house all day long with with fleas and bug bites, and he left in in the car, and I heard this clunking around in the. Oh, okay, sorry, up here. No, this is the receiver, so you don't want to. Okay, I I heard this clunking in the fireplace, and I thought it was pretty loud, like really loud, and the. The people who owned the bed and breakfast had only just put like a board in front of the fireplace. I think it kind of had a couple flimsy nails in the board. So it wasn't like a sealed off fireplace. So I'm hearing this rustling around in the fireplace, banging on the board, and I'm thinking, bear. I know it's a bear. How a bear gets in the fireplace, I don't know, but I knew it was a bear. And I thought, okay, we're, I am here all alone. I, this was before the days of cell phones. And so I'm just, no neighbors around. I'm just in this old house with a bear in the fireplace. There, a hole, like a there was a little hole in the piece of wood and I'm looking at the wood and this claw sticks through the hole. So I screamed, I ran and got this uh, piece of furniture, shoved it in front of the board and got a fire poker. And I sat there with the fire poker, like whatever you call that thing. It was like the only weapon I could find in front of the board for hours, listening to this and seeing this claw stick through. And I finally, I don't even know how we figured it out, but it wasn't a bear. It was a family of raccoons that had decided to live there for the winter. So they were in there fighting and squabbling and whatever. There were probably five of them in there. And that's what the claw was. And that's how the fleas were getting in. So then we started to go on this whole adventure of getting rid of these raccoons. We tried smoking them out. We tried... Uh, trapping them. We had all sorts. We even had it. This sounds terrible, but we even had this neighbor who was like a hunter and he was like ready with his shotgun. Like we were going to smoke them out and he was going to like shoot these raccoons. I know no animals were harmed in the making of this adventure because they actually didn't ever get out of the chimney um, or the fireplace. They just went to a different part of the chimney, I think is what happened. And so finally we, the we, we couldn't deal with the raccoons, so we had to deal with the fleas because we thought, well, if we just cut it off at the source, get rid of the raccoons, we'll get rid of the fleas, but we couldn't get rid of the raccoons, so we had the fleas to contend with. So we had these, we tried at first soapy water. You put soapy water around where all the lights are, and they jump up to the light, and they land in the soapy water because you can't squish a flea. I learned that, too, in Paw, Paw Michigan. They will not squish. You can't step on them. You cannot swat them where they die like a mosquito or another kind of bug. They, are, they do not squash. So... They have to die in water or something, so soapy water. That still didn't work. We had like all these fleas in the soapy water, but we still had so many fleas in the house. And so we finally set off these chemical flea bombs. And you're supposed to be out of the house with and have it ventilated for a couple days, I think. And we couldn't do that because it was below zero. So we, we just kind of opened the windows for a little bit. But I think the chemicals made me really sick. So I started getting really sick. I got this horrible bronchitis infection. I was 
the, the bed and breakfast stored Kleenex in this industrial cabinet, like probably 100 boxes of Kleenex and toilet paper and paper towels. And I used up every box of Kleenex in the, in the cabinet, storage cabinet that they had. I was really sick. I was coughing all day long. It was, it was not romantic. Let's just put it that way. I was in bed covered with flea bites, piles of Kleenex everywhere, raccoons in the fireplace, creepy old house. He's gone every day and I'm just miserable. And then one morning we woke up to the sound of pipes exploding in the kitchen. It was just like this waterfall sound. So we went in the kitchen and it was flat, totally flooded with icy cold water. Got, it had gotten so cold that the pipes exploded. And so he had to crawl under the house at four in the morning, try to turn off the water. And so then we were without a washer, a dryer, a dishwasher. We didn't have any normal conveniences in the house. So we have laundry piling up. You know, remember, we don't have like a laundromat nearby we can go to. So we have laundry piles, Kleenex piles, soapy water, fleas, raccoons. It was the last scenario I would have ever envisioned for happily ever after. And <laughs> this is, you know, we rode off into the sun. God wrote our love story, and this is what we ended up with. And so I was... <laughs> I was a little bit disillusioned. Not, I wasn't mad at Eric. We still had a, um, we were laughing through it and we had a good relationship through it. But I think I had to, God had to freshly remind me of that surrender process. That surrender, laying down your, your rights, your agenda, your, your plan of how you want things to turn out. Laying that at the foot of the cross and saying, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And if you choose fleas, if you choose raccoons, if you choose broken pipes, if you choose Papa Michigan for me, I will joyfully accept that, and I know you have a purpose in it. And until I came to that place of surrender, I was, I was really miserable. I mean, not in our marriage, really, but just in our circumstances, and I was disappointed and disillusioned. But once I came to that place of surrender, I was able to find joy and humor and life in the whole situation, and it turned out to be one of our greatest memories from our early years of marriage. We did move as soon as we could and the only criteria we had for and getting a new place was clean and new and no fleas like that's all we cared about and so we got this duplex and it was brand new it had no fleas and even when we we're moving in I remember seeing a little speck of something black that looked like a flea and I just panicked because I thought you know we're gonna bring the fleas with us but we recently got to show our kids that first duplex that we lived in and, and God really taught us so much through that but one thing I would say about surrender is that it's not a one-time thing. You know, you think of surrender as something you go through one time in your Christian life, but it's a daily process of taking up your cross and following him. And when you're, sur when you're surrendered, it's amazing how he can take all that the enemy means for evil in your life and turn it into something beautiful. And I think it's been one of the most important principles in our 25 years of marriage. All right, guys, let's go to the next principle, uh, faithfulness. Uh, I'd say this has uh, been a very beautiful one, and any, any of you that have read uh, our books from years ago on a romance relationship, very ro uh, romantic uh, one, but hard to understand up front. Uh, Philippians 2, 5 says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to describe that Jesus humbles himself, that Jesus becomes, that takes on the form of a servant, humbles himself to even be obedient unto death on a cross. And so it shows a behavior of one towards his bride. And so it's interesting because even before he met me, he had this mind towards me. And so this becomes a very critical idea of faithfulness because when we think of our future marriage, those of you that are not married in here, you don't think of being unfaithful. You're like, you know, I'd like to get married one day and then commit adultery. No, no one ever sets out to be unfaithful, 
But what we don't do is set out to be faithful. In other words, if you want to be faithful, then start setting the mold now. Start setting a pattern of behavior now in how you live by being, as I used to say, a one-woman man uh, or a one-man woman, depending on which angle you're taking that from. In other words, that you're already taken. You're not just on the open market, uh, but you're already giving yourself to someone, and you're saying, no, I, I, I'm reserved. And this, this was a very interesting dimension of how God built us as a couple, because before we knew each other, I was writing love letters to this girl, didn't know who she was, and I was uh, keeping myself for her. Now, I'd blown it many times before that. In other words, my life was a wreck, and then I came to Christ, and this is one of the key areas that he began to cultivate inside of me. And I remember being in uh, McDonald's with my buddies. It was, a, it was a break during college. And they were talking about food and sports. And then they got to the topic of girls. And it was a typical guy flow of a conversation. <laughs> and God sort of touched me in that moment. And he had been working in me, sort of like, Eric, do you trust me with this? Do you trust that I have someone for you? And so in that moment, when we got on the topic of girls, I sort of slipped off into la-la land while they were talking. And I, I, the conversation, would, if I could turn it into that, would have gone something like this. Uh, God, if it's true that you have someone for me, that means she's alive right now. And you know, a lot of us, when we think of our future spouse, we don't think of someone who's living. We think of a concept or an idea. And so for the first time, I began to realize this is, this is a real person with real feelings, they have a real life. And then I was thinking, I wonder where she is right now. It's just a thought, I wonder where she is right now. Isn't that a fascinating concept just to think? If, you're, if God's plan and purpose for you is marriage, that means this person is likely alive. You know, for some of you, it's a panic point if you think, are you serious, they're not alive yet? How old am I going to be? <laughs> but they're likely alive, right? And so what are they doing right now? That's what I was thinking, I pictured uh, her on a date with a guy. It was a Friday night, and I was, I was thinking, wait a minute, she better not be with a guy. And then I pictured this guy making his move, you know, how guys do, you know, the old, they, they yawn and then stick the arm around the shoulder, and I was like, oh, that turkey, what does he think he's doing? And I was rather upset because I pictured this guy kissing my future wife, and I was a little disturbed by this. I didn't like the fact, I wanted to take this guy out to the woodshed, uh, and he was, he was messing with something very, very precious to me. And it's funny because I went from zero to 60 in my thoughts about this, just like, boom. Eric, you care, don't you? You care about your future wife and what she's doing. I do, I do, I really care. Well, Eric, well then how much more do you think she's caring about what you're doing? And it was like this flip that the Spirit of God did inside of me to recognize that, whoa, wait a minute, she actually would be caring about how I would be living right now. And I felt really good at that exact moment because I was around a whole bunch of guys in the McDonald's. I'm innocent, right? But at the same time, it began to go deeper, sink deeper into the thought that what if she followed me around? What if I had, the, I, I used to say, guys, what do you think this is? And people would say, quotation marks. I go, these are eyeballs, and they belong to Leslie. Uh, I didn't know her name was Leslie, but I began to live as if this girl was watching me. And she was, you know, when I was interacting with the opposite sex, would she feel honored? Would she feel comfortable with that? To begin to live my life in such a way that would truly show honor and respect to this girl, and this changed. This radically altered my life, and I that's when I began to write love letters to her. It's like, if she's real, I wanna begin to live as if she's real. I wanna begin to set up my life as if she's real. And it's interesting because Leslie, before we were married, made a statement to me, 
And if you're a guy in here, you can feel the unfairness of the statement, right? But she said, I wish you'd never had a thought for another girl in your life. It was one of those romantic moments, and it was whether or not she or any of you girls would ever think that that's possible, it's interesting how a guy, because you know, my first instinct as a guy, I'm thinking, that's impossible. That was my first thought. But then my next thought is, if she desires it, you know, when, when you have that bond with, with someone of the opposite sex, you're falling in love, you're, you're moving towards marriage, what you want is to give them the life that they would desire. I, I wished I could go back in my life and relive it for her. So for all of us to begin to recognize the preciousness of marriage is worth making decisions now that truly would honor. Because when you get to that point, you're gonna wish you could rewind and erase. You know, we always say give God the pen. Some people say, oh, I, need God, I, need to give, I need God to give me the eraser. Uh, I just like, we need to scrub out some things. As opposed to when you have the opportunity, do it right. You have a foundational opportunity. God is a redemptive God and he takes what we have done wrong and he can convert it into an amazing picture of his grace and love. But there is something that is very precious about knowing what you ought to do, knowing what you could do, and beginning to set forth to say, God, give me the grace. Live inside of me and begin to perform your love through me to love someone even before I've met them. Now that was a really beautiful part of our pre-marriage relationship. I walked through a similar process, which I'm not going to go into today, but I, I remember when Eric gave me, right after we were married, a notebook full of love letters that he had written to me before we even met. And it was really beautiful because I realized that his faithfulness to me had started long before he even knew my name. And it was a really incredible, uh, that he had been, uh, an incredible realization that he had been thinking about me, praying for me, living in faithfulness to me long before we ever even met each other. And that principle actually actually continues into a God-centered marriage as well. I remember the first couple years that Eric and I were married, I used to read a lot of Christian books on marriage and what a wife needs from her husband. That was kind of the gist of most of these books. And they were they were good. They had some good principles in them and, you know, good, you know, it's good to communicate your needs to your spouse, etc. But I noticed this subtle shift from wanting to serve and lay my life down for the, my spouse to kind of constantly critiquing how he was meeting my needs. And even though I, you know, wanted to love him and serve him, I kind of got this mentality that, well, he's not doing this right. Well, the book says he should be doing that. Well, hey, you know, X, Y, and Z, that's not covered in, you know, in our marriage relationship. Well, he's not doing this. And I started to focus on all the ways that he was falling short as opposed to how can I faithfully love and serve the one that God has placed me with? And I think that is such a key principle in marriage that goes the distance. It's faithfulness. Faithfulness begins before the wedding day, but it needs to continue after the wedding day. And it goes so far beyond just not uh, being unfaithful in the moral sense. It's a faithful love that is constantly sacrificial and selfless and laying down your life for the other person. You know, people ask us, is purity the secret to a marriage that goes the distance? It, purity is merely the outflow. Real purity is merely the outflow of selfless love. Selfishness will kill a marriage. Selfless love will uh, cause a marriage to grow more and more beautiful with every passing year. So purity before marriage really should only be the outflow of loving this person in a selfless way. And that love needs to continue after marriage. And so I noticed that in trying to focus on all the ways he was falling short as opposed to how I could faithfully love and serve him, it actually put a great strain on our marriage relationship. When I said, okay, 
I will communicate my needs to him. I will, I'm not going to be some, you know, silent martyr type of woman who never expresses things that I need in our marriage. But at the same time, my goal is to lay my life down, to serve, to love selflessly. And with both people in the marriage relationship have that attitude, that is the pattern for a marriage that will go the distance and grow more and more beautiful over time. So again, faithfulness starts before marriage but needs to continue long after marriage. And it goes beyond just staying married to one person. It's faithfulness within your heart, selfless love, sacrificial love. So this, uh, this next one, uh, I'm thinking we'll just give a, a summary of, uh, and that is tenderness. Tenderness is that sacrificial love. It is actually an understanding love, if we could say it that way. In other words, as a man, uh, and I know this is an obvious statement, but for whatever reason it's been clouded in our culture, a man is different than a woman, I know. That's a, that's a shocker, right? But you don't realize how different until you get married. And you recognize that God created a complement, not a, an exact replica. <laughs> In other words, it's like a puzzle piece match, not a, a mimic or an imitation. Leslie is not a man, okay? I'm just gonna let you guys in on that. Uh, she is a woman, and a woman is very unique in how she compliments a man, but it, it leads to some great humor points. But for a man, I need to be able to get outside of my shoes, get inside of Leslie's, and look at life through her gaze. And that's called living in an understanding way. And so what we see, First uh, Peter says, husbands dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. It's an important part of a successful relationship I mean, if a man's prayers are being hindered, something's going south in that marriage quickly. But so what's the key? He needs to recognize she's different than me. And I need to live in an understanding way. Now, this, doesn't, this is a two-way street. In other words, even though it's talking to husbands here, the woman also needs to live in an understanding way. She needs to know what's different about a man. What does a man need to be able to thrive and to be strong in his role? And so we call this tenderness. And so I remember... Uh, this one time I was in college and I was walking down the hall and there was this door was open. And it was this girl that was in the, the dorms. It was like a, I was going around trying to invite people to a Bible study. That's why I was in the girl's dorm at this exact moment in time. So I know it sounds a little sketchy. But I'm walking along. I knew this girl and uh, she was like in her room and she was crying. And she was sobbing. It was a very awkward moment for me as a man. I'd, I'd never been very good with sensitivity. My mom could say amen to that. And so I had always really struggled. Uh, my mom used to, it was like oil and water with my mom. And so when she would you know, have, just cry, uh, I would be like, what's her issue? What is going on here? And so now I have this moment. I, God is getting a hold of my life, but this girl's crying. I don't know what to do. So I say uh, something like, Julie. She looks up. Yeah. I go, um, hi. And then she goes, hi. And then she goes back to crying. I keep walking. I had no idea what to do. And it was, it was triggering something in me that I recognized that there was something a man should do. There was something appropriate that a man should do to live in an understanding way. I didn't know what it was. So I remember I came home and I recognized that my practice ground was my, my mom and my sister. I mean, once you recognize that, it actually is a huge step forward. When you realize, as my mom used to say, the way you treat me is the way you're going to treat your wife. I was thinking, I'm not going to treat her better than that. Uh, <laughs> but what we're doing is we're setting a pattern. Again, setting a mold for behavior in our first family is setting a pattern for our next family. And so I remember my mom was crying in the kitchen, and I came up, and 
I set my hand on her shoulder. Because, uh, I mean, that was what I was figuring I probably should do. I should be comforting, right? And so she looks, she stops, she looks over at me. She's like, what are you doing? I'm, I'm trying to be understanding. Uh, and she, then she fixed my hand on her shoulder and patted it. And it was like, a little awkward, I have to admit. <laughs> but very, very significant in softening me to recognize that I'm not, a lot of us, like as men, we try and convert our wives to be men when we get married. And wives try and convert their husbands to be women. It's a terrible idea. But when we live in an understanding way, we appreciate the fact that they're not like us and we amplify that strength as opposed to diminish it. Did you have anything you wanted to say about tenderness? Okay. Uh, and then principle number four, teammates. Uh, a beautiful dimension of our life. When you're driving down the road and you're trying to make a decision to move to the next lane over and you're on the interstate, you, know, you need to recognize that there is a certain consulting of different instrumentation that is important. And the same is true if you're making a key decision in life that there are rear view mirrors and side mirrors and of course the old sh over, look over the shoulder type of move that can be very, very significant in making a healthy decision. Because imagine that your side mirror is showing a semi. It's saying, uh, there's a semi there. I'm concerned about you making a, a lane change right now. And you say, I don't care, side mirror, what you have to say. I'm changing anyways. What, what's going to happen? Well, I mean, bad things could happen. I'm not saying that the semi doesn't go into a ditch and you still make it, right? But you're setting yourself up statistically. The odds are high that you're going to have an accident and a serious one. And many of us have made bad decisions and somehow survived. So we're like, see, I made it. I'm fine. And yet we don't realize that we are increasingly uh, odds-wise our, setting ourselves up for disaster in our life. Each of us has been given this counsel in our life. Now, some of us might have a better setup than others. But one of the things we used to always say to people around the world is, even if your parents are missing, because your parents are the built-in rearview mirror, side mirror system. Even if your parents are missing, or they're against your life, they're like anti-Christian, here you are going after Christ, they're like, I want you destroyed, you know, even if they're like weird parents, right? Because that's not the way a normal uh, set of parents is. But even if God still has supplied you by his grace with that which you can go to and find that counsel, and so that's part of our sensitivity to say, okay, God, who are my teammates in this situation? How can I navigate through this? And so this idea uh, has been very, very significant in our life. Uh, the, the scripture, this clicker, for whatever reason, is a little slow. Proverbs eleven fourteen: where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. So in consulting the rearview mirror and side mirrors, there is safety in that lane change. And so this becomes a very, very significant process for us in our development in you know, if we were going to go through stories, uh, did you want to go through a story first or do you want me to uh, lead in the stories for this one? Okay. So, uh, parents, the idea of parents in a relationship, just to be honest, if I was to go back in time, I, I've spoken on this for so many years that I need to try and go back in time to remember what it felt like when I, I mean, I was a public high school kid, okay? I didn't grow up around the notions that I'm bringing up right now. And... So for me, the idea of parents, you, parents were embarrassing. When you're, in, when you're in school, you stay away from your parents. You try and act like you don't have parents. Oh, I'm just a self-made millionaire. I live over yonder by myself in a mansion. I just can't bring you home to show it to you, right? You, you like give this air, this, 
this uh, idea that you're on your own, that you don't have brothers and sisters that are uncool. You don't have, unless your older brother's like, you know, famous athlete or something, then you'll brag about him. But otherwise, it's just like, act like you don't have family. Because family sort of messes with the image. And uh, so it's interesting because when you bring up the idea of parents being injected into our love story, and I remember dealing with this in the very beginning because God was doing something, and I was saying, God, teach me how this works. Show me how to navigate through this. We didn't have any blueprint for this. I mean, you guys have grown up in a generation where tons of books have been written. So there's like a thousand blueprints. You could do it this way, you could build this one, you could build this kind of a uh, you know, relationship, and it could probably lead to a whole different form of confusion, but for us, we didn't have any blueprints. So I don't know which is harder, which is better. <laughs> it's, they're both challenging. And you know, so for us, we're like, God, what does this look like? And I remember the, just the old-fashioned side of me desiring to say, okay, well, what would it look like if I showed respect? If I were to say that Leslie is under the authority of her father, because I remember that one tradition, uh, who gives this woman to be, uh, who, who gives this woman to be married to this man? Uh, and then the, the father is supposed to say, uh, her mother and I. Right? It's like, okay, that's, that's significant, right? Whether or not, is that biblical? Is that in the Bible? Is that and yes, this is a very key thing. It's an issue of authority. And so as I began to realize that Leslie was a life under authority, it became very, very significant for me. So I remember Leslie and I at the very beginning of our, well, I should say it this way. Before we even were in a relationship or were thinking about having a relationship, we were friends and we were traveling every Friday up to Denver to take voice lessons. And uh, we were singing duets together and she's five years younger than me. And at the time, that this was a relationship wasn't a possibility. I was 21, she was 16. She was like a younger sister, so it, w it wasn't much of an issue. But we were spending a lot of time together, and I really cared about her. And uh, it also bothered me when I don't know what it was, but uh, I remember bringing up something about my brother marrying Leslie because my brother's two and a half years younger, closer to Leslie's age, and it sort of bothered me. It's like, come on. Uh, I don't my brother marrying Leslie. And it was like these funny things that added like nuance to the, the story. Uh, and so at a certain point, I was realizing I wanted to live for my future wife as if she was watching me, right? I wanted to care for Leslie's future husband. And we were spending a lot of time together. Maybe we're spending too much time together. I don't want my future wife to come into my life and say, wait, wait a minute, who is this girl? Oh, it's just a friend. I don't want her to feel at all threatened. I don't want her future husband to come into her life and go, hey, who is this guy? Oh, he's just a friend. Yeah, right. You know, and so in other words, I was concerned that maybe in my desire to do this right, I was making a mistake. And I really wanted to do this right. I didn't want to stumble anymore. I'd made so much of a mess of this area of my life. I wanted to set a new pattern. So I set up a, a, a time to get together with Leslie's dad. And uh, it was a scary uh, thing to be doing because the only time I ever saw guys talking with dads is when they would ask for their daughter's hand in marriage. It's the only thing I've ever seen in movies or anything, right? So it's like, I'm talking with a dad. And then I was realizing as I was getting together to talk with him at Perkins Family Restaurant early in the morning that he may be thinking I was going to ask for his daughter's hand in marriage <laughs> because that's the only reason a guy would ever ask. To, and I was spending a lot of time, I was thinking, oh, no. I mean, she's 16 at the time. It's like, so I had that thought as I was sitting in Perkins. I'm like, okay, uh, Rich, I just want you to know I, I'm, not, uh, I'm concerned about my relationship 
with Leslie and how much time we're spending together because I want to honor my future spouse. It's like, I'm gonna nip this in the bud, make it very clear to him that this isn't you know, what, what, what he may be thinking. No, that's not what I'm thinking. And you know, I really wanna do this right, you know, our, and I just want your counsel on this. He says, Eric, you know the reason why I know your relationship with my daughter is of God? No, how? Because ever since you've been in her life, she has drawn closer to Jesus Christ. And so this was out of the blue, right? I'm trying to get counsel of what's wrong, and he says, I want to tell you what's right. The fruit of your relationship so far is that my daughter is drawing closer to Jesus. And he just was like, I just want you to notate that. That's, that's a good piece of fruit. And you know the reason I know your relationship with my daughter is pure? Uh, no, how? Uh, because if it wasn't, God would tell me. <laughs> that was a whole new wrinkle uh, to the thing, but what it did in the processes was showing me that a father has a position in a daughter's life that is very significant, and he has an understanding of his daughter, even spiritually, even for something like that, like her purity, that is very significant. And I mean, it struck terror in me right at that moment to think that a father knows that type of stuff, or I should say could know that type of stuff. And then he said, Eric, I give you my blessing to pursue a relationship with my daughter in any way that God would lead you. It's like, Rich, no, no, that wasn't why I sat down with you today. I, I, and he goes, I know, I know. I just feel like I'm supposed to give you that. Oh, okay. <laughs> that was really awkward for me. And of course it makes total sense, you know, after 25 years of marriage, what was taking place there. He had a sense, and in fact, in the next time I got together with him, something happens in between that meeting and I get together with him again, and that is that I awaken. <laughs> you know, how this, guys are very slow to awaken, okay? We, we as men are obviously a little slow on the uptake of some of these romantic things. But there was that one day in my life where I'm like, the girl I've been praying for every day the girl I've been waiting for, the one I keep thinking is gonna come in from over here is sitting right here. It's like, whoa, it's Leslie? Ah, that, I remember sitting down with my sister, it was like a private conversation, like, Chris, you can't tell anyone that I'm even thinking this. <laughs> but I actually think that maybe my future wife is, is Leslie. And she looks over at me like, Eric, this is so obvious. <laughs> Every single person knows that. It's like, what? <laughs> I almost wanted to say, well, then it can't be. I don't want, it, I don't want any of them to have any say in it. Uh, but, so I get together with Rich again. This is getting together with a dad twice. On my, you know, I didn't even have to do it. I wasn't even asking for his, his daughter's hand in marriage, I didn't think at least. But what I was saying, I sat down and I was really nervous and I'd been practicing it. Rich, I really feel that uh, Leslie's maybe supposed to one day be my wife. How do you say that? I mean, that's just like, how do you script it? What would your quote be? I mean, just think it through. I mean, how am I going to say this to this guy? And he was sipping his coffee real early in the morning. He didn't know what we were going to talk about. And suddenly he's like wide awake. He's like, whoa, what are we talking about here? He says, Eric, Janet and I, that's Leslie's mom, have been praying for Leslie's future husband since she was two years old. Every day. That we would recognize her husband when he came into her life. Eric, we've known for some time that you're the one. So in this process of discerning and making a lane change, one of the things that has been very pithy and profound for Leslie and I is to see how that which God has entrusted us, like our parents, and as we have 
given them a position, which is hard, I, I understand. As, as the single person, it's like, ah, this is, you don't want parents to overreach. It's like, oh, you're giving me a position? All right, I'm taking over total control. And so it's just like this fear. If I'm gonna talk to parents, I'm gonna say, be very watchful. It's a delicate handoff. And if a child begins to open up to you to say, hey, I want you to be a part of this, don't overreach. Don't overplay your position, but come alongside of them to serve what God is doing. It's a delicate balance both ways. And yet what we have seen is so extraordinary. I started to get together, uh, I don't know how often, weekly or so, with Rich. And you know what he was teaching me? How to win his daughter's heart. So I literally learned from the master, uh, her very father, how to win her and how to be sensitive to her. And uh, the, the profundity of it, he became one of my closest friends, a dad. A dad became one of my closest friends because we shared something very deep in common. And that was the desire to see this daughter, this girl, truly become what God intended her to become. So it was a, it's just a profound uh, thing. One of the things that I would tell a parent who's listening to this is to look at your role sort of the way John the Baptist looked at his role. He said, I am only the friend of the bridegroom. When the bridegroom is seen, my joy is complete. And so for parents who may feel, I know our parents felt very uh, ill-equipped for this task. How do we become godly teammates without taking too much of a control position? We've never you know, seen this kind of a relationship before. We're not sure what to do. There are a lot of parents who feel daunted. So when young people go to them and say, we want you to be on our team, they either become really controlling and domineering and take the place of Christ in that relationship, or they kind of back off and don't get involved at all because they feel intimidated or they're preoccupied with other things. And I would say for a parent to realize your role in this process is to be a friend of the bridegroom, to point your child and this this other person that's in the unfolding relationship back to Jesus Christ and to constantly see yourself as that that conduit, to lead them closer to Jesus, to remind them of the, of the truths of scripture, to help them see Jesus, help them be led by Jesus the whole way. And it can be really beautiful when parents have that understanding that they're the friend of the bridegroom. They're not the bridegroom himself. They're not the one who makes all the decisions. They're the ones who help the, the bride find the bridegroom and see the bridegroom more clearly. So I think that's what our parents did. And I would say they weren't experts. They didn't have it all figured out ahead of time, but they went to their relationship with God and said, guide us, give us wisdom. And that's such a beautiful thing in scripture that God promises to give wisdom when we ask. Because I think this is an area that a lot of people need wisdom in. The parents don't know what to do. Even young people who are in a relationship don't always know what to do when it comes to a healthy teammate kind of relationship. Uh, so going to God for that wisdom and looking at your role as one that points to Jesus Christ and not one that takes over control. And But also be, but have the courage to rise up to it because a lot of parents, like I said, just feel intimidated, so they just kind of have this totally hands-off approach. And we live in a generation where when relationships are forming with Christ at the center, uh, we need all of the accountability and godly teammate input that we can get because the culture isn't giving it to us. So don't be afraid to rise into that role that God has for you if you're a parent. And if you're in a situation where you don't have a parent that's walking with God, you, they're not in a position or you don't even have parents, 
ask God to show you who those teammates should be in your life. And they shouldn't be people who just want to tell you what you want to hear. You know, you can go out and get a buddy to be your teammate. And they're going to tell, yeah, go for it, man. You know, when they ask, should I get into this? Like, yeah, good. she's cute. Go for it. You know, that's not the kind of teammate that God has for you. So ask God to show you older people in your life that have the heart of God that are going to tell you, speak to you out of truth, not out of just what you want to hear, what you actually need to hear. And God will be faithful to show you who those people are meant to be in your life. So we've gone through uh, four principles, but uh, last night I recognized that there's a need for a fifth principle, and there's been a fifth principle that has been cultivated in our life over the last 25 years. And uh, so we're going to change this to the five principles of amazing love stories. We have surrender, faithfulness, tenderness, teammates, and endurance. Uh, because what good is it to lay a good foundation and then fall to pieces? <laughs> it's, it's actually rather disturbing to all of us uh, with some of the things that have happened lately. It's just like, hey, I want to go the distance. There is no, you know the number one desire? George Barnett did a research, it's probably like 20, 25 years ago, to discover what the younger generation what their number one desire in life was. And get this, it was to be married, but there was more to it. It was to be married to one person for a lifetime. Isn't that odd? I mean, I don't think any of, of course, that was 20, 25 years ago, but back then, it was just as odd, okay? We're, I remember even saying that this is a strange thing. I don't think any of us would have guessed that it's not just to be married. It's to go the distance in marriage. And I think we innately crave it. We're wired for this, this this love of a lifetime idea is so deeply baked into us and yet it seems so out of reach because even if you were to do this so well and have this beautiful love story and then get married and say, I do, what have we been told? Well, it's all downhill from there. And of course, we don't have a lot to argue with today. What we see are a lot of marriages that are tepid, that lack the heat and the warmth or have totally fallen to pieces. So when that's what we have to look at, you can understand why a younger generation <laughs> craves it or doubts that it exists. You know, because some people are just realists. It's like, okay, yeah, I would want that. That'd be wonderful. But hey, you know, let's, we live in reality. Let's not even expect it. And when you don't expect it, you're not going to wait for it. You're not going to go after something you don't know is possible. But if you do know it's possible, watch out world. All right, I'm going to let Leslie talk about the principle of endurance Proverbs 24.10, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. What does it take to uh, go the distance? Well, you have to be able to handle adversity. You have to be able to not faint when it gets difficult. One of the key principles that we're going to be talking about in the Purity Summit is the understanding that there is no way that we humanly can achieve what God intends for marriage. When you read, for instance, Proverbs 31 as a woman, you, you can look at that one of two ways. You can look at it and say, that raises, raises the bar so high, no woman could ever achieve Proverbs 31. And there's, there, there have even been Christian books that mock Proverbs 31, saying, you know, if you try to rise up to that standard, you're only going to fall on your face, you're going to be burned out, you're going to be exhausted, you're going to be frazzled all the time, because no woman could ever do that. And yet, if you look at Proverbs 31, or anything that God gives us in Scripture as a standard, as a vision, and you say, Lord, 
by your enabling grace, by your strength, if I yield myself to you, you can live in and through me a life that I never could live on my own. You can allow me to rise up to a standard through your might, through your strength, through your enabling grace, because I am in Christ. And it's not by my strength, it's through his strength that I rise up to this. I think that's probably one of the biggest missing pieces in modern Christian marriage, because so many young people grew up in the church with the idea that, hey, I just, I live in purity, I wait faithfully for my spouse, I honor my parents, and I live happily ever after. Not understanding that you cannot just lay the right foundation ahead of time and go into marriage thinking you're going to just be this heroic spouse and you're going to live out all the principles of 1 Corinthians 13 every day. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not easily angered. You know, you look at 1 Corinthians 13, that is the secret of a love story that goes the distance, but who of us can actually accomplish 1 Corinthians 13? It's abiding in Christ every day. It's knowing your position in Christ. It's not attempting to rise up to the standards of Christ in your own strength, letting his life within you enable you to obey. And as Elizabeth Elliot said, God does not give us instructions that he is not prepared to equip us to obey. And so without that secret, without that engine, the spirit of God within you, giving you the grace, giving you the strength to obey one step at a time every single day, of course, you know, purity and all these other things are not enough to help your marriage go the distance. Christ has to remain at the center. One of the other key principles, and it really goes hand in glove with, with what I just said, is keeping Christ at the center of a marriage means a lot more than just praying together at, you know, before meals and going to church together on Sunday. We discovered early in our marriage relationship that we needed to cultivate an individual relationship with Christ just as much as we needed to cultivate a joint relationship with Christ. So when you are spending time individually in the presence of God every day, you're praying, you're pouring out your cares, your your thoughts, your prayers, pouring out your heart to him every single day. You're allowing him to fulfill you and to fill you with all that he is. You have the strength to be an excellent spouse. When you're neglecting that relationship, then you start looking and relying on your own strength to be an excellent spouse and it doesn't work. So when you cultivate an individual relationship with Christ, even after marriage, it's so important to recognize that your fulfillment, joy, peace, strength has to come from that relationship first. He fills you up to be excellent in your marriage relationship. If you start looking to your spouse to meet needs in your life that only Jesus can really meet. You will tear your marriage down. As it says in Proverbs, that you know, the, the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her hands. And I see that happen a lot with, with both men and women who start looking to their spouse to be Jesus, looking to their spouse to be perfect, looking to their spouse to meet every need, hope, desire, dream, need for peace, joy, strength. You can you can derive a great bit of strength and joy and happiness from this human relationship, but your depth of fulfillment, the ultimate love of your life needs to be Jesus Christ, the, the true bridegroom. That's what enables a marriage to really go the distance. There's uh, one final scripture uh, that we'll finish with, because I think the reason we're even doing the Purity Summit is for this exact reason. It's not that we don't have the truth. It's like we need to recognize that all hell is set against what we're headed towards. To reveal the kingdom of heaven on this earth, should we not expect a difficulty? Why do we consider it strange when we face trials of many kinds? And yet, when you choose to be married and to do it God's way, can you understand that you're deliberately choosing to be in the center of a battle? Is it worth it? Oh yeah, but you need to be equipped for it. You need to understand what it means to go to front lines and be a Navy SEAL. 
it is a harder job description than the rest of uh, the military uh, operations. You are choosing to go into more difficult territory. And yet, it's the most beautiful territory you could ever traverse. So what we see is when, when Jesus is talking about the parable, some people call it the parable of the sower, some people call it the parable of the soils, but we see the seed being scattered and we see different people and how they respond to it. And this one, I, I would say, unfortunately, is likened unto much of modern Christianity today. These are the ones sown on stony ground who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness and they have no root in themselves and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. So this is something that Jesus himself knows is a very plausible way that we can receive to receive it with enthusiasm, with excitement. I want to live for Jesus. I want to do this right. But you need a root system. You need to be built to go the distance. If you're hungry for that, the Spirit of God is more interested in that than even you are. In other words, the God of the Bible (laughs) desires good soil. He desires to prepare your soil so that you could not just receive the truth, but that you could stand in the truth through all the difficult things that will come your way. As a simple statement of fact, God's the one that builds godly marriages. And he's also the one that keeps them from stumbling. When we allow God to retain his position in our life and we abide in him, we will bear much fruit. We will go the distance. He is the great secret. Father, thank you so much for what you've begun in us, the vision that you've laid out. But Lord, I pray that you would exercise it in us and that we would act upon these truths and not just be hearers but doers. Lord, I want to specifically ask that you would anoint each of us for our engagement in the truth this afternoon. That we would hear, respond, that we would be instruments of change in this generation that we would not take these things lightly, but that we would see them animated in our life. Holy Spirit, we cannot do this without you. The work of the shed blood of Jesus has purchased us an avenue of entry into the Holy of Holies where we may make our request known unto the Father, and our chief request is that we need the life of God inside of us. Lord, we ask for the Holy Spirit to indwell us in a greater measure, or for some, maybe for the first time. But Lord, without this, We cannot do this. We trust you and we yield to you today. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask this. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com. E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E dot com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.